It's RYOBI days at the Home Depot. Buy a RYOBI One Plus two-pack battery starter kit for just $99 and get one of over 20 select RYOBI One Plus tools up to an $84 value free. The OnePlus system also fits over 125 other RYOBI tools. So now, going cordless is almost endless. Buy the battery kit, get a free tool. RYOBI days now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Valid through June 19th, limit one per customer while supplies last. See store for details. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, America's largest mortgage lender. Spring is prime home buying season, so if you're thinking about buying a home, right now is the time to lock a low rate, which can save you money every month on your new mortgage. With our exclusive Rate Shield approval, the low rate you lock today is protected for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. With a Rate Shield approval, if rates go up, your low rate stays locked. But if rates go down, you get that new, even lower rate. Either way, you win. Talk to us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com to take advantage. Here's another great reason to work with us. For a record nine years in a row, J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in the nation in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination. Again, to lock in today's low mortgage interest rate and get the security of our exclusive rate shield approval, call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year fixed rate loans. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. Get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man. You know, like I, you know, I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the And Campaign, and the Crux and the Call. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the And Campaign and the Crux and the Call. So glad to be with you this week. Uh, Justin is not with us. Uh, he has been uh, traveling. We had a big uh, and campaign event in New York. So shout out to everyone that turned out for that. And it's just me. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, America's largest mortgage lender. Let's talk credit card debt for a minute. If you feel you're carrying too much of it, you're not alone. The average household in the U.S. carries over $8,000 in credit card debt. Ready for some good news? With a cash out refinance from Quicken Loans, you can quickly and easily put some of the equity in your home to good use by paying off a lot of that high interest credit card debt. A great way to take cash out is with our 30-year fixed rate mortgage. The rate today on our 30-year fixed rate mortgage is 4.375%, APR 4.65%. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN to learn how taking cash out with a 30-year fixed mortgage might be the right solution for you. And for a record nine years in a row, J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in the nation in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. Rate subject to change. Pay 2.13% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. 
but it's also not just me this week. We have a very special episode for you. Uh, I had the opportunity to have a conversation with Gene Sperling. Gene Sperling is the only person to ever serve as director of the National Economic Council under two presidents, both Barack Obama and President Bill Clinton. He was a consultant on four seasons of NBC's The West Wing, uh, and he's just been a public servant for the last several decades. Really, there is probably no one else who has been as decisive in economic policy making over the last several decades as Gene. And I was just thrilled to be able to uh, talk to him. And we brought him on because he wrote an essay for Democracy, um, the Journal of Ideas, called Economic Dignity. And in this essay, uh, Gene lays out a vision for sort of what the guiding ethic of the, the, the sort of end goal of economic policymaking should be. And he said, uh, he writes in the piece, it, it should be economic dignity. And so in this interview, we talk about what that means. We talk about how he developed that concept. We talked about how uh, policymaking can sometimes, and policymakers can sometimes get uh, a loss and distracted from uh, what their end goal should be and can make sort of the the instruments and the 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 means of economic policy making that the ends it's a fascinating conversation and just before we introduce this I, I wanted Gene on this episode because I believe this conversation is uh, one that we as Christians have a great deal to contribute to uh, there is no special Christian insight on GDP growth. There is no special Christian distinct insight on uh, what the uh, exactly what the median income should be. But we have some some insight on dignity. We have some insight on what it means to flourish as human beings. We have some insight on uh, what it means to love our neighbors. And so, what Gene has done with this with this essay is he's actually uh, opened up the economic conversation from one that is just about sort of narrow expertise, which is very important. <laughs> GDP growth, median income, the stock market, all of these distinct aspects of how our economic system works, they're all very important. And we need experts. We need Christian economists. We, 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 need, we need all kind of expertise. But what Gene has done with this essay, I think, is open this up to more of a philosophical and, and really, you know, from my perspective, a theological perspective. And so as you're listening to Gene, the point is not, do you agree with every single thing he says? The, the point is to actually wrestle with what he's uh, with what he's saying and to be able to affirm what you can affirm what he's saying and maybe say, you know, I'm, I might add something to what you said there or I'm not sure if. Uh, if if what you said is a part of uh, what economic dignity has to entail, either way, it's an excellent conversation for us to be a part of. We're very proud to bring this interview to you. We're grateful for Gene for spending his time sharing his ideas with us, and we're grateful for his public service. And uh, without further ado, here is Gene Sperling. Well, we are just uh, honored to have Gene Sperling with us to discuss his essay uh, in the Democracy Journal 
uh, on economic dignity. Gene, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really honored to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Now, since uh, we saw this essay, uh, we knew we wanted to bring it to our readers' attention. Uh, would you mind just describing uh, for for our listeners the basic case that you make in economic dignity? Well, you know, I first start out by noting that even for somebody like myself who has been you know, had a box seat or been on the playing field for a lot of national economic policy dialogue the last two, three decades. There is a scarcity at times of actual thought and deep reflection on what is the actual end goal of why we do economic policy. If you say that to people, they'll give you a million answers. They'll say, you know, it's to raise growth, it's to raise median wages, uh, but very few times do people actually sit back and say, but what's the actual end goal for how we want to serve people, how we want to uplift uh, uh, the fulfillment and meaning in people's lives? That's the ultimate goal. And I think in economics, people can feel like, well, that sounds trite. You better give me some very hard, specific numbers and metrics uh, but those metrics are not end goals in themselves. They're means to a, a higher end. And so what I do in this essay is I try to fill in that, 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 that gap. I ask more, what should be our ultimate end goal, our ultimate North Star for economic policy? What on a person's deathbed or when they're around the kitchen table? would they felt mattered most in their life uh, in terms of our economic lives? And so that's what I try to, to say. And I define that that ultimate end goal for economic policy should be what I term as economic dignity. Hmm. Now, the phrase dignity is used often by right. many people in politics and policy, et cetera. But, but, I, but it's rarely defined. And I try to define what would that mean to have universal economic dignity in our lives. And I, and I center around essentially three fundamental pillars. One, do you have the capacity to not only care for your family and loved ones, but to not have these greatest joys of life denied by economic deprivation? Uh, so I start there. And again, not even just with the what does it cost to put food on the table. But if you ask what, what is most meaningful in, in, in life that we should, that can be universal for everyone, you know, things like uh, bonding with your child, being there for a parent in their final days. These are not side issues. These are fundamental to our our life experiences. And there's no reason in a country like the United States that that element of economic dignity can't be universal. Look, we all can't do everything we dream of. We're not all going to be famous or movie stars or, or M play in the NBA or be CEO of the largest companies. But that's not the issue. It's not about whether everybody can have everything they want. It's about, is there a basic economic dignity and being able to 
that through your work and contribution that you can care for your family and your loved ones and that you have the capacity to experience those greatest joys without economic deprivation taking it away is a first pillar and one that is not satisfied in this country. We know that for many people, they can't have that feeling because they don't have adequate health care, uh, because they can't take off that week or two weeks to actually ensure they can be with the child or that they can provide dignified care for a family member who's very ill or, or a relative. So that's my first peer tier. The second pillar I talk about is uh, the, the being able to pursue your potential and purpose. So obviously in the Declaration of Independence, we talk about the pursuit of happiness. But for most people, a sense of dignity also comes from the capacity to pursue your potential and purpose. And again, not everybody's going to reach everything that they want. But we have so many times in life by either the accident of your birth or accidents that happen in the economy during your life that shut down people's ability to pursue their potential. And I think that's why you see people often give up earlier in life when they never got a first chance or for people who suffered terrible economic dislocation, long-term unemployment, uh, that they give up uh, later in life. And I think it's because it denies something very essential, a sense of purpose, a sense of capacity to uh, uh, contribute. And here's something where we as a country idealize this value. We all say on any part of the political spectrum, the accident of your birth should not, uh, should not dictate the outcome of your life. We're a country that honors second chances and a second chance economy and everybody could go west, et cetera. And yet we do worse than probably any country at actually giving people second chances. And if you have any interaction with the criminal justice system, we put up barrier after barrier that keeps you from having that, that chance. And then the third tier is that pillar is to be able to participate in the economy without domination or humiliation. And without this third tier, uh, none of the economic dignity definition would work because your desperation in life to care for your family and to pursue your potential can create a terrible power imbalance. And so it can force people to participate in the economy in ways that is humiliating, where they don't have a sense of autonomy, but feel dominated. And so in order to really have economic dignity, you can't just say, well, you can all, you can all get a, a job, but the, at the expense of giving up what is most essential uh, in a sense of personal respect uh, and being dominated and humiliated. And that really does go to Immanuel Kant's definition that nobody should be treated as a pure means to another's end. If you are nothing more than a means to somebody creating profit or somebody getting higher market share, well, the ultimate example of that is, is slavery. That is the ultimate uh, uh, disparagement of any form of human dignity to not be treated as an end in themselves. But when you make people work in sweatshops, when you force people to deal with a sexually hostile harassment environment, when you uh, people have to deal with abuse at work, well, those are still ways in which 
they are being forced as a condition for supporting their family and pursuing their potential to have to deal with the degree of domination that should be inconsistent with our sense of economic dignity. Yeah. Gene, this is all very powerful. I'm wondering, is there something about this political moment or this moment in our history that led you to feel like you wanted to zoom out and sort of uh, take a big picture view of, of, of why you and others, you know, do and should do the work you, you do? What, what led you to uh, we're going to dig deeper into the essay, but I'm, I'm just interested, you know, now what, what led you to, to write this, write this piece? Well, I think one thing that motivated me that is beyond the politics of any particular moment is, you know, I, I think I, like a lot of people were inspired by the values that somebody in their life instilled in them. And in my case, it's my mother and father who instilled in us that to use whatever benefits or advantages you've had in life to uh, fight for social justice for other people is about the highest thing that you can do. And I think that, you know, I go to into the policy field. I worked in civil rights law, then in economic policy. I think a lot of people do start with a uh, a pure point of, of view. Huh. And it's not that so many people are somehow corrupted or, you know, in the way you would see on House of Cards, I'm sure, you know, sure, House sure, of Cards yeah. or things like that. But I think you get distracted. Yeah. I think you take your eye off the ball for, uh, for reasons that you get into, I'm for this candidate, you're for another candidate. Mm. Uh, we've had an epic battle over a policy issue 20 years ago, and we're still fighting about who's right or wrong. Right. And you lock into these positions. And there's a part of me that at times that felt more and more in our policy that we were focusing on more strategies and means to an end as opposed to the end goal itself. And there's times, I guess, I just have felt in policy, hold it, folks, why are we having this suspicious, accusatory conversation? Can't we focus on what the ultimate end goal is, what's most important in people's lives? And I came to the view that if you shifted economic policy a bit more that way, it would help. It would help us talk to each other. It would help us work together. It would keep people from digging in on positions where they have heavy ego uh, commitment, you know, or capital investment, right, you know, sure. based on their past arguments. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'll give you an example of one that I've seen recently in, in the political system, which is when you were when people were talking about the Affordable Care Act, you could see the country divide. Yeah. Are you at for Obama, against Obama? Right. Are you for government health care policy? Are you, you know, against government health policy? When you finally got to that ultimate pure goal of what it is you're trying to do for people, and you could say, do you believe that a hardworking American, simply because they have a spouse with a heart condition or a child with disabilities, uh, should not be able to change jobs without not being able to get health care? Do you think if somebody, one of your loved ones, uh, has a health problem, that this means you shouldn't be able to get health care or a company should be able to jack up 
the prices and discriminate against you. When put in those more core human terms, huge numbers of Americans say, no, that is a violation of your sense of economic dignity to not be able to care for your family. And if we have a system that does that, let's correct it. Well, when you do that, then we have a common goal, a common end goal for how to promote economic dignity. Now, maybe we can all say, let's commit to that. Let's figure out what the best way to get there is. Uh, and again, I think sometimes we, we, we don't make as much progress and we have too, you know, too much internal battles, fighting, squabbling that maybe, maybe could be somewhat minimized if we kept our goal on the ultimate North Star of how we're trying to improve people's lives as opposed to our ideological and political strategies and past positions. Right. And you, you, you argue in the essay, uh, you know, this, this doesn't necessarily, it, it, it changed the, uh, changes the, the terms in which the debate is held so that no longer are we arguing solely on whether more or less government, uh, for instance, but arguing about what the effect of the policy that we're putting forth would would have on the economic dignity of of the people we're supposed to be uh, of the people we're supposed to be serving. You um, you argue that focus on uh, growth, for instance, or a median income can, as an end goal, can quote blind policymakers from seeing the rise of anxiety and economic desperation due to economic insecurity and the Swiss cheese safety nets that could accompany a period of short-term median wage increases. Yeah, I think that's so important right now. I mean, if you look at so much political debate right now, it's going to be, what is GDP growth? Now, growth is important. But I would say for a large number of people who discuss economic policy, you would think that was the end goal. It's not the end goal. It's a means to an end. And how important growth is to our end goals for economic policy is somewhat a function of how strong it is. But it is also hugely a function of how that growth operates. So imagine you've got two different countries that have 4% growth. One of them has a, a royal family that give, puts all the money to us to a few hundred people and everybody else uh, does worse. Well, obviously, 4% growth doesn't mean you've reached your end goal because that's a terribly inhumane economy. Another 4% growth could be in an economy where it's helping everybody have a degree of economic dignity, of opportunity, of ability to rise. So when you're judging growth, it's not an end goal. It is a means to an end. And so, you know, what I say in the essay is the problem with John F. Kennedy's famous line or the way it's interpreted that a rising tide lifts all boats is it tries to make it seem like it's automatic when it's not automatic. That's actually the test for growth. Is a rising tide lifting all boats? Is it increasing economic dignity? And I think even for people who are focused on ensuring that there's more shared prosperity, economic metrics can kind of throw you off your game. Or as I say, it can blind you, create invisibility to what's really in the economy. So yes, uh, you can have a growing economy, but if people feel the future's less certain, if they feel that they're oppressed at work, 
or being sexually harassed or discriminated against, they're not, you know, this economy is not working with them. And when you make those metrics, the end goals, you can stop asking the real questions of, is this economy working for the fulfillment and happiness and well-being of all of its people? Because you say, and I've heard it a million times in my life, why are people unhappy? This number is good or that number is good. As if that was the end goal instead of their sense of fulfillment and well-being. That's right. This essay uh, meets the challenge not just of what we saw from the left and sort of uh, you know Occupy Wall Street and these sort of robust left critiques of, of uh, capitalism, but also from the right. I mean, th- to me, reading this essay, I was thinking of uh, Charles Murray's uh, coming apart. I was thinking of, uh, I was thinking of, uh, actually, I was thinking of Christopher Lash quite often when, when reading your essay. And so uh, it really does move the terrain into other areas where, as you noted, uh, we had an entire Republican primary in 2016, where basically the entire economic debate was who would promise a higher number of, uh, of uh, growth. Uh, Jeb would throw out a number and then Trump would throw out uh, a different one. Uh, and, and that doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to be too productive. Do you do you see this argument as as meeting sort of challenges that haven't been at the forefront of our national debate, whether we talk about sort of rural communities and what they're facing, uh, rising suicide rates among some populations. Do you feel like like that's what you're trying to um, capture in our economic analysis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. There was, you know, it's hard to criticize enough how (laughs) shallow and meaningless the debate was in 2016 of promising a higher GDP number. First of all, just the whole idea that, you know, uh, you know, whoever's going to win the NBA championship isn't going to be by how high their coach predicts they're going (laughs) to score. It's going to be by what actually happens. But secondly, making that the goal. And let me give you examples. You've mentioned a couple of where if you if you when you start to to not focus on the ultimate end goal for people you you go you can miss things even if you're well intentioned i i think ijen pu and the entire movement that she has been a part of with the national uh, domestic workers coalition etc um that you know one of the things i say is how can people just started talking about this insecurity of people working for multiple people uh, when we started seeing Uber and Instacart. There's always been people in our economy who have been working extremely hard without real security, without real protection, uh, uh, without assurance of of the degree of being treated in a dignified way. Um, And they don't show up in the numbers, right? Because they're working Maybe they technically got a raise in wages, even though they're not getting benefits or protections against illness or the freedom to leave their job and do something else if they're being mistreated. So there's, that's a lot of economic pain that is completely invisible when you're just looking at, quote, GDP or metrics. You mentioned uh, you know, different regions of the country that might be, you know, not only not growing as much, but feeling they're left behind, ignored, uh, not being included. 
the degree that you have people born into impoverished areas and, you know, often people of color who, who never see that there is a commitment to actually allow them to pursue their sense of potential and purpose. These are, these are deep harms that may translate into certain economic measurements. But I want to say that isn't something you only acknowledge if you see it in the labor force participation numbers. You know, it's almost like it's not a real economic goal until you see it in an economic metric. No, if you started out by asking, how are we doing in meeting these three pillars? Then you ask yourself those questions when you're designing your economic policy. You put that at the front of your list. So yes, I think that there'll be less people who are invisible, less type of harms that are invisible when you start your economic policy with the view of how are we doing at ensuring a degree of, of universal economic dignity uh, for for all people. And I think that it will be good for politicians too, because they can become out of touch. They can think, wow, this economic metric's going well, or this one's going well. And they're not really, and they can lose sense of the anxiety, the pain. And as you said, the, 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 the notion of deaths of despair, of people being so discouraged by their loss of economic opportunity or pursuing potential, that it's actually for some people lowering how long they're living or even uh, leading them to take their own lives. I mean, that's extreme examples of, uh, of where we can be deeply missing uh, uh, what should be front and center in, in our economic uh, policy ambitions and dialogue. Yeah. Another parallel I, I've been thinking of is, uh, you know, David Brooks has written about the difference between resume virtues and, and eulogy virtues, sort of, uh, and, and people mostly want uh, their lives to be defined uh, by eulogy virtues, but they pay so much attention to what goes on the resume. And this is sort of a similar thing, you know, when, when yeah. you know, do you, do you, uh, is, is GDP growth really going to be the, the highlight of a politician's career if, underlying that was, uh, for instance, economic uh, domina- domination and uh, humiliation and employment. And, and that that uh, that really sticks out to me. No, I, I, I've heard David Brooks give that speech and it's wonderful. And I think that a lot of the benefit is that they're more in one's own life. It kind of says, hey, you know, uh, are you thinking too much about resume uh, when what really matters in life are the type of things that people talk about uh, at eulogies. Um, you know, th- this kind of focus doesn't mean you disregard economic metrics. I mean, median wages tells you something very important. Um, you know, reducing the poverty rate does. But I do think it is important still to see that they are means and metrics to an end, that there's that even though something like economic dignity obviously has a more qualitative and less precise measure than those metrics, it's still better to be precise, to be approximately right rather than precisely wrong. Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize winner, says we already have that problem in all sorts of areas in life that we focus more on what can be easily measured than what might be 
most important. Most of us think finding a loving life partner, for example, is pretty darn important in our lives. And yet, you know, we don't have any real way of measuring it, but we do know, at least in that area, most people know that matters a lot. I think in economic policy, the focus on the metrics really does take our eye off the ball and keep us from asking a lot of the, uh, uh, of the right questions. Yeah, I, I loved your example of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which you raise in the essay, and the way that uh, sort of a focus on economic dignity can lead to a healthier political culture so that the sort of direction of our political debates is not just about sort of who's, uh, which policy is, uh, you know, going after the bad guys more, which policy is more uh, about retribution, which policy is is about more or less government, as we already noted. But you, you said here uh, that, that the CFPB should be seen less as a reaction to the financial crisis and more as a structural response to the predation uh, that families can suffer that threaten their economic dignity in the role as borrowers, renters, and consumers trying to meet the essential elements of caring for family. And that sort of teases up right the question right that if if other people have a have a have a better way of going about attacking and responding to that predation then then we want to hear it uh, but that's that's the end goal not uh, not some ideology of of what government should or shouldn't be doing yeah. right and I think that so a couple of examples there which is people often see, Something like, you know, so the the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Board, which was, you know, uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren fought very hard for, my friend Michael Barr had worked on and then ultimately passed and was signed in the Obama administration, is to me something where a lot of people look and they just say, okay, some of us are for more government regulation and others of us are for less, we're for more markets. And that's kind of the way the debate is framed. And what I was trying to say there is we're a market economy uh, or a mixed market economy. But what I'm asking is not, of course, we're going to have competition. But the question is, what is that? What are the values that that competition uh, promotes? And so when you say, to uh, to banks, you are limited in your ability. We're not going to allow any of you to do things that are predatory and take advantage of people and are deceptive. Is that intervention getting in the way of competition, or is that just ensuring that we ha- that the robust competition that we have actually promotes our well being? And if our goal is to have an economy where people do not feel dominated or humiliated or taken advantage of, uh, what's wrong with doing that? So my view is that's not anti-competitive. That is structuring our, the way that we compete and act in the marketplace in a way that promotes economic Dignity. And my view is that, you know, and I've seen this when I've done consulting, you know, you'll say, hey, guys, you know, let's take this high road. 
let's take this high road and treat everybody extremely well. Let's have the best consumer protections. What happens is that people on the call will say, boy, we'd love to, but our competitors won't. We will lose. We would like to exhibit those values, but if we do, we'll get beat in the marketplace. Well, there's something wrong with that. We should have a marketplace that encourages competition that that promotes high values. So to me, when you take away by regulation the the ability to pollute, to hurt other people's health, to do predatory or exploitative things, that's not restricting competition. That's just saying that when we compete, we're going to compete in a way that's going to be robust and vigorous, but we're going to take away the, the option of competing in a way that harms the environment or harms people's dignity. And I think that's uh, uh, and I think that's such a better way to look at it than getting stuck in this. You know, are you for less government, more government? Are you for markets or not for markets? Let's talk about how do we as a democracy, how do we structure uh, not just our government, but how do we structure our markets and competitions so that they are serving the only legitimate economic goal there can be in a society, which is to increase the fulfillment and well-being, or what I call economic dignity, of the of its people. Gene, we're almost running out of time, but you, you touched on sort of how establishing a new frame helps you to ask new questions and think of things differently. Uh, one of those areas is uh, that I really wanted our listeners to hear about. You raised this idea of double dignity jobs, which I, I just, I know will be attractive to a lot of the folks we're, we're talking to. Can, can you explain what double dignity jobs are and, and why you think they're so important in this framework? Well, you know, I was partly responding to people who were, you know, suggesting that, you know, if it turned out that through automation or robots or whatever, if it was the case that there were less good jobs in the private sector. And some people were saying, well, don't do anything. That's just the way the market is. Other people are saying, let's just write everybody a check and make sure they're okay. And uh, so that they can at least survive. And my view was that there are lots of unfilled jobs in our economy. Uh, They may not be the ones the market demands, but they're the jobs we demand or should demand and are unfulfilled in a a country where you want to promote economic dignity. So my view is, shouldn't we prioritize what I call double dignity jobs, which are jobs that give people a sense of purpose and dignity in the service of giving other people dignity. So, you know, when you look, for example, at one of the biggest issues in our country, caring for people uh, with dementia or Alzheimer's, well, none of us want to see our loved ones in their older years retire and die without dignity because they have terrible care, because you can't afford to help them, people out. I mean, that hurts the dignity of those people who have worked their whole lives. It goes against completely Franklin Delano Roosevelt and other people's visions of a country where everybody could retire and have their older years with dignity. Well, 
if you have more people who are not only who who actually can get the training and the skills, then a couple of things happen. One, people who are doing care are now being given the training and skills to do much more, to do the basic care, the basic caretaking, but perhaps also have more medical training, more treatment training, more strategies for how to deal with people who have different forms of dementia or, or different stages of Alzheimer's. That is giving those workers uh, a higher skills. It's going to then make it so that they get higher pay. They're going to actually reduce the overall healthcare costs of our country because they are going to be able to give higher care higher quality care in at, in people's homes or community settings. And so you're giving people, more people, a sense of, of dignity in a job that will then give more dignity to the people who now have gaps, dignity gaps in their lives. And if you look across the board, there are so many areas, uh, children who may have learning challenges, but they're not from families that are well off enough to get individual tutors. Uh, the, the incredible parents in this country who have children with autism who want to do everything they can for them so they can have the absolute best, most fulfilling lives, but, but get so little help from our country. All of these places are ones where we could be using those funds not just to write somebody a check, but to help them have a career and a job that in the best sense that Martin Luther King talked about gives them dignity because they're serving others. And therefore it is double dignity because they have the dignity of a job that's higher skilled, that's higher paid, that's caring, that's their dignity. But then they are also giving more dignity because they're helping a person be cared for or have more purpose and potential in their lives. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful idea, Gene. Uh, the, the, the last question I have is, you know, we have uh, listeners that come from all walks of life. Many are motivated uh, by, uh, by faith, by a sense of service. One thing that your framework does here is uh, it actually opens up uh, for debate and discussion uh, something that seems relatively closed off, which is which is economic policy. <laughs> that that uh, I, I think people often feel intimidated and therefore sort of discounted. But uh, when you frame things in the terms of economic uh, dignity, then uh, all of a sudden, in very clear ways. Uh, Faith traditions have something to contribute. Pushes policymakers they have to to reach out to communities and reach out to people and say, well, well, what does dignity look like in your life? Uh, people not, might not know exactly how GDP growth relates to them, but they certainly have a sense of what it would be uh, and how they perceive dignity for for their person and for their family. And so, I guess. Um, my last question for Eugene is just uh, what would be as someone who's held very senior positions uh, in government as someone who's seen politics and economic policy work out at the highest level what can folks who aren't economic experts but are involved in their communities uh, how can they help push this conversation forward well you know you said something very important there which is I do think that the way our economic policy debate, is framed, which is 
often people think, well, they have nothing to contribute because they don't understand, you know, the difference between, you know, GDP and the productivity numbers, and they can't quite follow the movements in the stock market when they turn on CNBC, that somehow uh, economics is somehow related to the things that they care about most. When you step back and realize that your goal of economic policy is to organize your economy in a way that, yes, is going to be productive and it's going to hopefully grow and expand and innovate, but that all of those things are still in service of that fundamental desire to uplift people's lives, the meaning that they that they have in their lives, and that that is an economic issue, that that it's not, uh, 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 you know, that, that there are too many things that are so important to our economic lives somehow aren't seen as economic. We all know that how we're treated at work, you know, if you have somebody you know who's being sexually harassed at work, if you know somebody who's being uh, abused or cheated at work, that's a huge issue for you. That's what you talk about with your family. That's what you're talking about at the kitchen table when you come home. So to kind of suggest, well, that's not really a full economic issue because it's not as related to a GDP calculation, uh, that we need to end. Those things should be front and center economic issues. And, and let me give you just, you know, to as I know we're getting near the end, let me give you one place where I do think the kind of faith and uh, uh, economic dignity I've seen starting to come together. I talked about that the second pillar was that everyone should have the, be able to pursue their potential and their purpose. And that that means that people need not only real first chances, but they need second and third chances in life to be able to pursue potential. I think that there has been a wonderful coming around and collective recognition that something is deeply wrong with how we treat people who in some way get involved in the criminal justice system and that people do not get second chances and that that is both wrong economically even from a growth perspective, we're losing their potential to contribute. It's wrong from an economic dignity sense because they're losing their sense to pursue their potential and purpose. And I know a lot of people from a faith-based view think that it's wrong because it has taken away the capacity for redemption and for people to, you know, improve their lives. And I think that's a beautiful place where you're seeing some people who are not always on the same side coming together, perhaps because they're focusing a little less on the po political tribes or even a little more government or a little less government and more asking the question about is what we do in criminal justice now, is our mass incarceration, is this terrible criminalization of poverty we see uh, uh, happen, uh, is this fundamentally violative? Does it fundamentally violate a sense of economic dignity in giving people a chance to pursue potential? I think that's a beautiful case of where faith and uh, spiritual commitment comes together on an issue that 
would not normally have been seen as a core economic issue, but I think from an economic dignity is a front and center economic issue uh, in our country today. Really appreciate that, Gene. Uh, uh, that is the end of our conversation, but uh, I hope the conversation will continue among our listeners. And Gene, we look forward to hearing more from you in the coming months. And uh, thank you for your, your, your uh, history and continued public service. Uh, and thanks for spending time on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I so appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Gene. Well, that was just an incredible conversation. I I, uh, trust that you're uh, thinking uh, quite a lot, that your your motor's running, uh, the wheels are turning. Uh, Mine certainly are. I would just encourage you to share this conversation with your staff, with your small group. Uh, This is uh, the kind of conversation that I think we need to be having as people of faith as, that we need to be having as citizens, uh, as Gene and I talked about in that interview, to be able to move the conversation and reframe our economic debates from these parochial ideological terms to what we actually want our communities to look like. I- exactly how can public policy help people to flourish? Um, that is a conversation that we could be entering in gladly, even if there are disagreements. And so uh, would encourage you to read the article. We'll, we'll have a link to the article up where, where you could find this, uh, where, where you'll find the podcast. Would, would urge you to read this essay by Gene, uh, annotate it up, uh, make comments. Uh, and and I, I just hope that this is a conversation that we could continue to have as a community in the coming weeks and months. Uh, and certainly as we get deeper into this 2020 election, uh, just ask yourself how much more productive 2020 would be uh, if, you know, instead of so much of the nonsense that gets talked about, if all of the candidates, Republicans and Democrats, were having a conversation about what, uh, how their policies would lead to greater dignity for the American people in the economic realm. I mean, it would just be it would just be a, a game changer. It would it would lead us to ask new questions. It would lead us to think of different answers, like like Gene's idea of double dignity jobs. I mean, I, I heard that and I'm like, well, yeah, that's basically an affirmation of 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 uh, Christian anthropology. I mean, that's that's basically yes, of course. When you do work that dignifies others, you're dignifying yourself. Like there's a there's a mutuality in this dignity uh, thing that we're talking about. It's just such a beautiful idea that we could uh, just contribute so much to. All right, folks. Well, can't thank you enough for listening to this episode. Um, we'd encourage you to review on iTunes so we could get this podcast out to more folks, share it on social media. And as always, get in touch with Justin and I uh, and campaign on Twitter. You could reach out to Justin and I personally. We want to hear what you have to say. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, uh, Justin will be back. Uh, so it'll be good for, uh, for him to be with us and we could catch up on uh, what he's been thinking about until then folks. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Have a blessed week. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame.
Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. Introducing my new spicy chicken strips combo. 100% all white meat strips with crunchy batter and the perfect kick of spice. The chicken is bigger and tastier and comes with fries and a drink. Go get it. Limited time only. Price and participation varies. Three-piece combo with small drink and fries.